You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So I stood in the parking lot. My hiking boots were on. My bag was over my shoulder. I was ready to hit the trail. So I looked at the map that was posted in front of me, and it didn't seem too complicated. It was a three-mile hike. Uh, Not too bad for early in the morning. The fog should burn off. Everything looked simple, clean, and very easy. But how many of you know... And there's a really big difference between the trail that's in front of you and the trail that's under your feet. So the brown plywood sign was in front of me, the map that the Pennsylvania State Forest Service had thoughtfully provided, and routed out and painted in bright yellow paint, the path looked simple. But what was that little yellow jaunt? Like, about a quarter of a mile in, the path took a sharp left and then back right, and then it scissored back and forth a little bit till it finally got to the overlook. What was that little spot? It looked like maybe the guy that was routing out the map, maybe the router got bumped, or he made a mistake and never went back to correct it. I'm sure that was it. It was nothing to worry about, nothing big. We should just kind of find the trailhead and get going. So that's exactly what I did. I crunched across the gravel parking lot, found the trailhead, and off I was into the woods. But how many of you know that the trail that's in front of you is much different than the trail that's under your feet? So this morning starts our first week in our series of James, this teaching series that we're going to engage over the summer, and I couldn't be more excited. Here's why. For me, there is absolutely nothing harder than actually applying the teachings of Jesus to my life. I can read them, I can study them, I can memorize them, I can even teach them, but actually having the courage to apply them to my life, that is really tough, and I'm willing to bet that you're the same way. It seems like often I'm caught in this tension between what I expected my life would be like, like courageous, initiative-taking, holy, loving, aware, empathetic, and then the actual experience of day-to-day, which is so often the absence of those virtues. And so if you resonate with that tension, the tension between expectation and experience, you're going to absolutely love these next few months in the book of James. And it's probably going to drive you crazy too, and you'll understand why as we go even this morning. So the book of James was written by Jesus's half-brother, and we're going to learn a little bit more about him each week as we unfold his book together. But for now, um, there's just a few pieces of information that I want to give you before we dive in. First, James is the earliest book of the New Testament. It was probably written about 45 or 50 AD. Um, So this is the dawn of the early church. And so James is writing um, to give this very early, very fledgling church some very essential teachings that they're going to need if they're going to survive displaced as they are in a Roman world. And so many of these teachings are still so relevant today where we are. Second piece of information I want to throw your way is that James is often thought of as the most controversial book in the New Testament. Um, So often James writes with such strong declarative language and some of the things he says initially they seem at odds with other things in the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. And so this has caused theologians and serious Bible readers to go, man, what is really going on here? But as we'll discover with James, there's always depth beneath the seemingly simplistic surface appearance. 
So last piece of introduction before we dive into James chapter 1. James himself, outside of being Jesus' half-brother, which would have been phenomenally complicated, was a pretty complex and rich character, and his book bears that out. He has the voice of a prophet. There's 59 command verbs, imperative verbs, in 108 verses. That's incredibly strong. He's also proverbial. It sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs. And so he talks about this wide range of topics, and he deals with them so quickly that it's earned his book the subtitle, The Proverbs of the New Testament. He's also very practical, and you're going to find out over these next couple of months that we're going to cover topics like temptation, how to use our words well, wealth, wisdom, life planning. It's all in here. And then lastly, he's very poetic. James uses 15 different rich metaphors, like these extended metaphors and similes, word pictures, over five chapters to get his points across. And so this morning, we're just starting off on the trail, and I couldn't be more excited. James is going to get us acclimated by addressing three problems that everyone who really wants to follow Jesus will encounter. And we usually encounter them very early in our journeys with Jesus. And these problems are so timeless and enduring that they even came up in our news this past week in 2020. These problems, as we examine them and try and hold them up to the light of Scripture, teach us that when God calls you to walk the Christian life, he always calls you to walk with himself. He never calls you to walk alone. He always calls, calls you to himself. So this first problem, the suffering problem, no better place to start than the beginning. So join with me if you would. James 1 verse 1. Here's what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, right up front, just a quick comment. He's writing to a Jewish audience. That's the 12 tribes. He says, in dispersion. It just means that they're scattered all over the Roman world. We'll get more about that in these coming weeks. But then he says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, here's something right out of the bat that we need to catch. There are 21 letters in the New Testament. So if you're newer to reading your Bible, here's kind of a rough structure of how the New Testament is laid out. You've got the Gospels. These are these pictures of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you've got the book of Acts, which functions kind of like a hinge. It's like this combination adventure novel and history. And then there's these series of letters written by guys like Peter and Paul and James and some others. Of these 21 letters, none of them start the way that James does. What do I mean? Well, Paul, if you're used to reading some of his letters like Ephesians or 1 Corinthians or, or Romans or 1 or 2 Thessalonians or Timothy, Paul's letters usually start out with a greeting like, I'm thankful for you or I'm praying for you, something very personal. Peter's letters, like true to form, Peter just wants to talk about how much Jesus has changed his life and so he just jumps right in. John, when he writes, he usually writes with some deep theological reflection, right? And so it's usually like a, like a prayerful blessing. But James starts off differently, doesn't he? He starts off with a command. The first word of James's text beyond his initial greeting is, count it all joy. And it's not just any command, it's this really bafflingly tough command. It feels a little jarring, doesn't it? He's not starting off by giving us something easy, because this is James. James prefers the hard trail to the easy one. So what's he say? Again, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And here we go. One giant imperative verb 
followed by this unbelievable command. So we're going to get to what that word count means in a little bit, because that's really important to unlock. But before that, what's he mean by trials? This is really important for us to get. What does James mean? Does he mean persecution? which was rampant, very common in the early church. Does he mean like physical trials? Okay, so like sickness and disease. Does he mean mental challenges? Something like anxiety, fear, anger, or restlessness, or discouragement? Or how about something from even our news cycle this past week when we think about systemic marginalization, injustice that we encounter in our world? And the answer is yes. James means all of that. If it's helpful, think about trials like this. There's this giant spectrum out here. So if we're going to start way on this side, this first kind of trial or pain, there are these pains that are just a part of life. Like, I stub my toe, right? And there's plenty of these that we encounter over the course of our days and our weeks. There's a lot of them, and they're not really too bad. Second thing, moving like a click to the right, there's pain that we cause ourselves. These are like the consequences of our own choices, right? So think about like this, like a speeding ticket, right? Like it's a little bit of a face palm, like, ah, uh, it's a pain, but I caused it. So I can, you know, okay, I can get over it. Moving one click further, there's pains that happen to us. Now this is where this gets a little bit tougher because these are the things that we can't control. A spouse that cheats on you, a job that you lost, cancer, disease, these things that come at you and they're really harder to process because I couldn't do anything about it and they leave us feeling powerless. You sense it getting tougher the further we go this way? Well, here's another one. The pain that happens to someone else that they cause. Now, this is a tough one because what we really want to do is sit back and get smug and go, mm, well, and this is where empathy is such a powerful virtue for Christians to cultivate. Harder than most of us would like to admit. But then there's one other thing that's further, and this is where this is such a pressing issue for the church this week is, pain that happens to someone else that they didn't cause. This is exactly the toughest stuff. And James says, he looks at that whole spectrum and he says, this, all of this, count all of this as joy. He's asking us to do something that we don't want to do. He wants us to take a wide view of the pains of life and a very personal view of the pains of life and take this wordless, ugh. And then he says, count it all joy. So we're thinking about like the unexpected death of a loved one, the lack of dignity that comes with joblessness, homelessness, or the lack of opportunity, the dehumanizing racial realities that we've seen play out in our, follow, or our fallen world. And I just want to make sure that you're reading between the lines. This is exactly where we've been this week. Image-bearing brothers in Christ in pain because of something that they cannot control. Sisters in Christ who are marginalized and there's nothing that they did. And entering into that kind of pain, counting that kind of trial as, a, as, a, as joyful, takes a much different kind of resolve than, oh, I stubbed my toe. These are the kind of things that should not be. And to become comfortable with them is to forget them. Now, it is a natural human response to want to distance ourselves from pain, isn't it? Like, I don't want to see that. And James says, no. He says, I want you to look at this, and I want you to look at it until you really see it. I don't want you to ignore, minimize, excuse, rationalize, or depersonalize the pain that you see. Look at it until you really, really see it for what it is. That word count, count it all joy, it means to turn it over and over again and again and again in your mind. 
Don't escape it through another Facebook refresh trying to see something else. Don't numb yourself by busyness. Don't distract yourself. Don't lose your sensibilities. Injustice is not a political discussion. It is a human theological discussion. All of those trials all over that spectrum deserve our attention because they affect image bearers, and this is what image bearers do. And his word for this church that is now, what, 15 years old at the oldest, is, guys, this following Jesus thing, this is not going to be easy. This is not the map that you saw in the parking lot. This is a much different trail than you may have thought. Now, why would God ask us to do this seemingly impossible task of counting pain as joy? I mean, really, could you imagine a more baffling thing to say to a watching, hurting world right now? To stand up or to post on Facebook, hey, everybody, this has been a tough week. Just want to remind you, count it as joy. But James knows something about suffering that we don't. Listen, he continues, verse 3. Here's what he says. For you know, so there's his purpose, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. So let's put that together. Really seeing the pain of life, that entire spectrum, produces steadfastness. So your translation might say perseverance. This is a really interesting word in Greek. It's a very physical word. It has the idea of remaining under weights or bearing a heavy load for a long time. It's like a muscle that gets stronger when it faces regular resistance. We learn perseverance over the long haul by staring pain in the face. Pain teaches us what ease never could. It's like that old saying, that a ship is very safe in the harbor, but that's not what the ship is for. Similarly, church, your life is safe when everything is good and you don't have to see these things, but that's not what your life is for. The trail is much different. And the cool thing that I love about this is this is the anti-prosperity gospel. This is James just being 100% real. Like this idea that God's purpose is to insulate you from pain and make you happy. What a terrible, selfish, unbiblical, small-minded idea. No, he is not interested in making you happy. God is not concerned with your happiness. He is concerned with your holiness. God does not want to coddle you. He wants to change you. And he knows that trials that teach me perseverance are the way to get there. This is the same thing that Paul says in Romans 5. He says, we rejoice in sufferings. Doesn't that sound like James? Why? Because we know that suffering produces, produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It's the same thing Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, speaking of trials, we rejoice because the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Do you hear it? It's the same song. It's the same drumbeat over and over again. But James does something that Peter and Paul don't do. James interrupts himself with a command that we need to hear, right? What's he say? Right in verse 4, he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect. So Paul and Peter, they just go, do, 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 do. they line the whole thing up and say, this is how this is going to work. But James inserts something in here and he says, wait a second. You have the power to halt your spiritual development if you don't let steadfastness do what it wants to do in you. Now, what's that mean? means that part of honoring what God is doing in you, if you see pain for what it is, is to let 
that work its way out. We have the responsibility to unstop our ears, to open our eyes, and to see the things that we don't want to see, to deal with the pain and not sweep it under the carpet. Think about that. Pain wants to work something out in your life if you let it. Perseverance is a process. Perseverance is essential, but it is not a given. Well, where does it lead? He continues verse 4. This is all under the banner of suffering. He says, let it have its full effect that, and so he's continuing his purpose, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So three descriptions, and I'm like, man, those sound great. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Where do I sign up? But let's be honest, right? I mean, James's words kind of feel a little bit like a locker room pep talk, fortune cookie, positivity post, all rolled into one. Right? They fall a little flat. Like, oh, what, James? Just count it all joy. You know, like, I appreciate the optimism, but, like, you know the world is on fire right now. Have you looked out your window? Now is not the time for navel-gazing and thoughtful contemplative reflection. Like, we have to do something. Don't you know what 2020 has been like, James? And it's only June. Show a little humanity. Because the obvious question that hangs in the air is we go, okay, James, like I'm, I'm all in. I would love to count all of that as joy. How do I do that? And James is going to help us out, but he's got another thing he wants to put on our grid first. Enter problem number two, the stability problem. Now, it's enough that the first problem is that we have a suffering problem, but we also have stability problems. So as we enter into this one, remember, when God calls you to walk the Christian life, he always calls you to himself. So, second problem, stability. Let's pick things up in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, that's the way to start out a letter. So did you catch it? Just like way back in verse 4, God wants you to be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Here James gives us another thing that God wants for you, but he puts it in the negative first. He says, I don't want you to be double-minded or unstable. And we'll get to that in a second. But for now, James is calling us to something. He's calling us to someone. So a few quick observations. First, James says, God gives. Right? If any of you ask lacks wisdom, ask God who gives. Literally, the text reads, if anybody doesn't have wisdom, let him ask the giving God. Which I love that Greek construction. It sounds like a small thing, but here's what I want us to see. It's in God's nature to give you wisdom. He doesn't hoard good things from his kids. He doesn't keep things to himself. That's not what our God does. He is good. Well, how does he give? And then the second observation is it says he gives generously. Oh, I love that too. The idea here is that God is just simply generous. He doesn't give with a kickback or with an expectation of payback. He gives to everybody freely. God's gifts never become debts that we are supposed to pay back. Third observation, it says he gives to all. God's generosity with wisdom levels the playing field. No one is more or less worthy of God's gifts than anybody else. And James sets it up this way. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, implication, that's you and me. Everybody lacks wisdom. And if you're not getting that, you're wildly misreading this text. 
He says, no, I'll give it to anybody. God does not play favorites. The last observation, and then we'll narrow this lens a little bit. As he says, God gives without reproach. Now, this is probably the best one because it's so anti-human. It's so against what we do. We'll say things like this. Like, sure, I'll help you out, but you have to ask nicely, right? I'm a parent. I say that all the time. It's like, I'm going to help you, but there's this thing along with it. Or, sure, I'll loan you the money. Just be smart about it and pay me back early, right? That's not how God gives. God does not give with strings attached. When God gives, he gives freely. This is a wide open door. So if wisdom is so wonderful and is so easy to get, why don't we ask for it? Where do we miss it? We don't ask God for wisdom because we are too busy looking for it everywhere else. A few quick stats for you. So since the last week of March, Roughly the same time when global restrictions went in place all over the world, we've become information junkies. A recent, recent poll shows that 50% of Americans have seen our phone usage go up 100%. And so what that means is we've moved from the average three hours a day in January to now the six hours a day. More than that, Facebook usage is also surging and all across social media. Facebook is up 53%. Live streams are up 50%. Instagram use is up 32%. And Twitter usage is up 23%. But now here's where things get really sobering. About a month ago, um, April 20th, I guess a little over a month ago, um, a research firm pushed out the first wave of findings around mental health and COVID-19. And what they found was uh, when they asked people, say, how would you rate your mental health now compared to January? 46% of people said, I am way worse off now than I was in January. We have all the information. We have all kinds of data coming in. Why aren't we better off? It's interesting. Now we shouldn't be care or we should be very careful not to vilify the device. The phone is not the problem. Okay, that's just the canary in the coal mine letting me know that I am the problem. There's something in here that's craving something that I just can't find out there. And so here it is. When considering the pain of life, all those trials that I have to reconcile in my brain, and some of them I don't know how to respond to, the whole spectrum, what do I need? I don't need more information. I need wisdom. And rather than asking God for it, we are prone to look for it everywhere else. Isn't it interesting? In this flurry of information, so little of it actually helps. We are posting more, we are reading more, we are saying more, we are hearing more, we are scrolling through more, we are sorting through more, we are processing more, and we are still searching for something that just isn't there to be found. We are drowning in information and desperate for wisdom. Never have we had so much to say and have it mean so little. And James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, just let him ask God. The writer of Proverbs imagines that wisdom is a woman in the middle of a crowded city square. Not all that tough to imagine considering our current cultural news climate and the mental space that most of us live in these days. And here's what wisdom sounds like according to the writer of the book of Proverbs. Just listen to this. It says, Wisdom cries aloud from the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? 
How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Like that sounds wonderfully refreshing. She continues, chapter two. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Implication, there's something I have to do. I've got to, I've got to work on this. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come understanding and knowledge. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. That sounds great. Like we hear verses like that and we say, yes, how do I get it? Here's what that means. Wisdom is not what I say. Wisdom is not what I post. Wisdom is not what articles I read or what authorities I cite because all of that, every pixel is like dust in a tornado, indiscernible and ultimately unhelpful. Why? Because wisdom isn't a what, it's a who. Wisdom isn't a proclamation, it's a person. Wisdom is not a resource, it's a relationship. And I'm just gonna keep going here for a second because I think until I get that, until I understand that wisdom is not something that comes out of me, but something that God wants to put in me and form in me, all of my opinions, actions, and articles and positions become static. Just more noise in an already noisy world. Guys, it's time for the church to recover something that I think so many of us have lost. The role of the church in times like these is to stand in the middle of a swirling hailstorm and have the gutsy, prophetic, singular audacity to say that Jesus is the answer. Not an answer to a problem, but the answer to the problem. And as our world burns, where will we be, church? So many Christians sucked up into the whirlwind. Or to borrow James's analogy, we are like the wave, driven and tossed. We make a lot of movement, but nothing changes. We have let Jesus slip to the periphery, and we are losing our influence because we are diluting our purpose. And we are just as seasick as the world around us, driven and tossed. And at the very time when our world needs stability and hope, the sad reality is that many of us have nothing to offer, and that is heartbreaking. Picking up on this vivid, vivid imagery, 19th century evangelist and pastor D.L. Moody said this. He offers us another perspective. Here's how he put it, and this is beautiful to me. He says, I look at this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said, save all you can. That is who we are. Christians, Actual, heaven-minded Christians who are focused on the gospel are homesick refugees sailing through the wreckage of this world and courageously reaching out. We offer hope, and we offer that hope in the name of Jesus. Guys, this is the worst time for the church not to be together. And I get that, and I feel it, and so do you. But this is the best time for Christians to be laser-focused on the cause of Christ. 
A chaotic world infected by sin and hate needs faithful Christians and focused churches. And so here's my word to you. Do not give the real estate of your heart over to something that could never change the landscape of your world. A lost world does not need our passing opinion. They need our all-sufficient, never-changing Savior. And so join with me when Paul, when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The church, above all people should be characterized and known widely by our enthusiastic willingness to release our opinions so that we can grab hold of Jesus with both hands. And so when James calls us to wisdom, he's just adding his voice to a centuries-long echo chamber that says, there is a better way. He's like the writer of Proverbs. He's like the Old Testament prophets. And he's like Jesus himself. He wants to show us God's heart. God wants to give you something, stability. And you're not going to get it on your own. And you can't get it out there. Stability. Is it even possible? Yes. When God calls, to walk, calls you to walk the Christian life, he calls you to himself. But standing in the way, we've got one more obstacle that we need to identify. Third problem. We've got the suffering problem, the stability problem, and now we've got the social problem. Look at verse 9. This is where things get a little practical. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. It's interesting. Because, like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Or another way of putting that is fade away while he's doing business. Now, at first glance, this is a tough one. Because it seems like James just shifted gears without the clutch. You're like, wait, we were talking about like, justice and equity and like suffering and wisdom and we had these really deep theological roots going and now we're talking about money. Like what, what's up James? Why, why the shift? Remember, James is always deeper than he initially appears. This isn't about money. This is about something much tougher. So here's what we see first in this text. James is contrasting two types of people. He spends eight words talking about someone he calls the lowly brother and then through an extended metaphor and five times the word count, he contrasts him with another type of person who he simply calls the rich. Now, is James saying that being poor is more Christ-like? And then he's saying that, that rich people are not people of faith, right? Or earthly wealth makes you less of a Christian. No, of course he's not saying that. So what's he getting at? The answer lies in understanding those two words, lowly and rich. So let's take a look at the first one, lowly. This word lowly could be translated as poor or humble. The NIV expands it to says the person of humble circumstances. The Old Testament uses this word to talk about somebody who is of little estimation according to the world's evaluation. Even someone who is oppressed by the world. This is orphans and widows and slaves stepped on and kept out. James is clearly describing somebody's social position here. And this makes sense because James's readers, remember we said, are scattered all over the world. This is a brand new church. They are social outcasts facing tough times and they're living in a hostile world. So that's this first person, the lowly brother. Well, how about this other person, the rich? Also, doubtless a description of someone who's wealthy by the world's standards. But James picks up this really thought-provoking, evocative metaphor, doesn't he? He says, he imagines that there's this scorching wind that reduces the rich man who is like a flower, 
to nothing. Where'd that come from? Well, throughout history, Israel geographically has been subject to a weather, a weather pattern called the Sirocco. It's this blasting, scorching southwest wind that once it's started in early spring, blows day and night for weeks and it wipes everything out. It's easy to imagine, isn't it, that James, who grew up in Galilee, had seen flowers fade and wilt in this intense wind. So what's his point? What's he mean by all of this? Simple. There are things in this life that we need to hold very lightly. And there are other things in this life that we need to hold very tightly. The things that are lightly. Wealth, right? This is fleeting, and everybody knows that. Even the wealthy among us in our church, you know how fleeting that stuff is. Social status evaporates. It's here for so quick of a second, and then it's gone. But then there's these other things that we have to hold very tightly. And what is he getting at here? It's this identity message. This is exactly like Jeremiah 9, where it says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight. When God calls you to walk the Christian life, he always calls you to himself. James is telling his readers, and thereby us, that no matter what their bank account looks like, how deep their 401k goes, or how many cars they have in the garage, to look to their identity in Jesus as the measure of their full significance. Everybody is an image bearer, and so they have dignity. Everybody is created in the image of God and loved by God, so they have worth. Everybody has the opportunity for a restored relationship with God through the love of Christ. So let's reach back and connect where we've been so far. Why, why do we lean into suffering the way that we do? Why is James calling us there? Why do we speak up against injustice and defend those who can't? Why do we posture ourselves as learners of people and valuers of story and listeners why bag lunches? Why support missions efforts? Why serve meals? There's only one answer, and it isn't because we want to make a better society or because it makes it feel good or because it's just what we're supposed to do. Christians have the one answer that eludes the rest of the world. Why do we do that? Why do we go to those places and do those things? We go there and do those things because there are image bearers there. Everyone in the world deserves the opportunity to experience the love of God through a, committed, a community of committed Christ followers because they are made in the image of God and that is the radical way that James understands the social problem. Now, let's zoom up because we got to try and wrap our arms around this entire text which looked really simple and it's actually really complicated. James has brought us to a point where there's something that we need to see. God's generosity, God's goodness, God's love and his leadership in the face of our inability. First problem, the suffering problem. It sounds like this, God, I want to make sense of the suffering I see, but I just can't do it. Second problem, the stability problem. I want wisdom, but I can't get it on my own. Third problem, the social problem. I want social equality, but it seems impossible. And here is the beautiful, simple, practical, compelling gospel according to James. You will never have a meaningful life unless you have a personal relationship with the Almighty God. You'll have a good life 
You can do great things. You can have a comfortable life. You can make society better. But suffering, stability, and the social problems will still be there. And so God is there going, look, here, come to me. Follow my way. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be way harder than you thought. But I'm going to be with you, and that's all the comfort that you need. Going back to this trail metaphor that we've been playing with here, wouldn't it be nice if you knew like the end of the trail from the beginning? You, had, you didn't have to wonder what that little jaunt was in the middle? Well, we do, and I want to read it to you. It ends well. Listen to this. This is Revelation chapter 21. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Whenever God calls you to walk the Christian life, he calls you to himself. So it turns out, for me anyway, that little yellow jaunt that I saw on the map was a quarter mile incline at 30 degrees. And the only thing I had for breakfast that morning was half a cup of coffee. So I decided that it should probably wait for another day. The trail under your feet is very different from the trail in the parking lot. The Christian life is not easy. And we're going to see this over the coming weeks as we walk through the book of James. Because honestly, you wouldn't want it easy because then you could take all the credit for it. And if my hunch is right, it's only going to get tougher in the coming weeks, months, and years. And so here's my parting word. Do not set your feet to the trail without Jesus. These are not days to walk without him. I'm excited to unfold this short, practical letter in these coming months together. And I think he's already gone away or ahead of us and prepared the way for us. So let's pray together and ask his blessing on the rest of our morning. God, we do say thank you that you are a way maker, that you clear the path. And if we would just keep our feet to the path that you have promised us victory because of what Jesus has already accomplished. God, keep us singular as Christians. Keep us focused as a church. Let us be faithful in our witness to make much of Jesus and nothing else. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.